Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Hello everyone, my name is Anna Berkey and I am the head of Start Space, which is a new service that we're building here at State Library Victoria. And I would like to welcome you to the library on the lands of the Kulin Nation and to pay my respects to the elders past and present of the Kulin Nation and any other elders past um, and present who may be with us today. So um, it gives me great pleasure to welcome you here to the library um, to today's policy pitch with the Grattan Institute and I know that many of these faces are regulars to the policy pitch. So tonight's speakers will be Bill Ferris AC, Professor Beth Webster, Dr. Charles Day, and we will be moderated by Jim Miniffy. So it gives me great pleasure to welcome our panel, our Grattan Institute members and staff, and the friends of the library who might be with us here today. Now, you may have noticed that we're in a slightly different venue from usual, where we are in the Village Roadshow Theatrette on the other side of the library. We are moving the policy pitch uh, events here to the Expera Media venue as part of our redevelopment of the State Library of Victoria. And you may have seen the signs on your way in, but we're going through a significant refurbishment and the builders are in. They're currently in the Village Roadshow Theatrette. And so we will be taking, uh, hosting the policy pitch in here while we do those renovations. Vision 2020 is the name of that project and the Start Space Initiative is part of that redevelopment program. It's about supporting the needs of our community in the future and looking at early stage and emerging entrepreneurs. So we'll be providing new business support services and resources as well as free co-working spaces and a program of events and education. It's why it gives me, in particular, great pleasure to be here for this particular topic, as while we're planning for 2020 at the library, uh, Innovation and Science Australia have released the plan of Australia 2030, Prosperity Through Innovation, so you're 10 years ahead of where we're thinking, uh, and that is a wonderful way for us to look at the roadmap for what innovation and what community support and what economic support needs to look like in the future. So it is now my pleasure to introduce as our moderator, Jim Miniffy, who directs the Productivity Growth Programme at the Grattan Institute, and he's all about developing policy to raise Australians' living standards through improved productivity. So I will let Jim introduce the guests, and please join me in welcoming Jim. Thanks, everybody, and it's great to see such a big crowd here tonight. And uh, for, a, for a topic that I think interests all of us, it fascinates me, and it's really important uh, to economic policymakers all around the world, particularly in advanced economies. The question about how to run innovation policy is foremost in the minds of many policymakers, particularly in those advanced economies, because it's research, development, and commercialization that pushes ahead both on the living standards that people have come to expect are going to rise, but also on solving important social problems. And it's really a pleasure to host the three of you tonight. Bill, Beth and Charlie. Let me just say a, a few words about each of our panellists. So Bill Ferris, immediately to my left, is the chair of uh, the, the Board of Innovation and Science Australia. He's had a very long career in venture capital, stretching back to 1970, I believe, Bill, is that correct? Yeah. You're, you're very well preserved. And um, you've, you've been involved in innovations across a whole range of sectors. You've had a particular passion around medical research. 
Uh, Bill was the chair of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research for 12 years, stepping down only recently. And I think if we get time, we'll, we'll have the opportunity to discuss some of the incredible innovations in genomics and personalised medicine, which do make an appearance in the, in the report, uh, Australia 2030, Prosperity Through Innovation, that we're going to uh, discuss tonight. Uh, but, but before I introduce the, the other two, Bill, could I just ask you, what is Innovation and Science Australia? And how does your, your role fit in and what does su success look like for ISA? Well, uh, Jim, firstly, let me uh, acknowledge the role that uh, the Grattan Institute is playing in support of this debate and the, uh, the importance of innovation in, in our society now and going forward. So thank you and your colleagues for organising this event and thanks for the library, Anna, where, where she is. Uh, for, for, for allowing us here today, and thank you all for taking the interest. Much appreciated. Look, Innovation and Science Australia is an independent statutory board of federal government, so it has essentially a private sector board of people numbering 13 at the moment that are drawn from venture capital, from education, from uh, as practitioners in the innovation space, um, uh, you know, from people like Scott Farquhar running that small business called Atlassian. I saw his net worth went up by a billion dollars last week. Um, to uh, the chief scientist, uh, our deputy chair, Alan Finkel, and, and a variety of well-experienced uh, and people passionate about this topic. Uh, I was invited to chair Innovation and Science Australia two years ago, and we began by looking at uh, well, what is happening in innovation in Australia, how does that compare internationally, and uh, how can we hope to become a top-tier innovation nation, because we ain't now, how do we get there? That's the essential remit that we were given as a board, and um, I'm uh, very pleased to talk about that as we go. Terrific, thank you, Bill, and obviously we'll get to the report throughout the discussion. Now, Professor Beth Webster is a um, prolifically published researcher on innovation, innovation policy, intellectual property, the dynamics of individual firms and how they innovate and become uh, productive. But not only that, you're now, uh, Beth, the director of the Centre for Transformative Innovation at Swinburne University and the Pro Vice-Chancellor for Research Impact and Policy at Swinburne. So that's a, that's a pretty complex role. What does success look like for you at that centre, Beth? Okay, thank, thanks very much uh, for asking that question. Um, so, but look, basically, we believe Australia is sitting on a um, burning economic platform. So, our two, so two of our major exports, uh, thermal coal and iron ore, Again, looking pretty shaky in the next 20 to 30 years. Thermal coal even faster than iron ore. So thermal coal is probably going to decline as people move away from carb high carbon uh, emitting forms of energy. And even iron ore, if you think of China being a major partner, if, I, if China increases the rate of recycling of, of uh, steel up to the level of developed countries, then its demand for iron ore will fall as well. Um, and education being our third uh, export, um, you know, it, it, that, that could swing depending on government policies towards uh, international, allowing their students to go overseas to study. Now, if, if two of our major exports um, have 
not very good long-term prospects and we really need to think about what are going to be our future export industries to replace those. Because if we don't have replacement export industries, it's going to have a major effect on our standard of living. And we know from research, that, and even just looking back at economic history, that it takes decades to generate um, new successful industries. It takes 20 to 30 years. You look at how long the Asian tigers took to grow their successful export industries in automotive areas, shipbuilding and, and uh, whatever. It, it takes a long time to build up the supporting institutions to make frontier firms competitive. So you need educational institutions, you need R&E institutions, you need logistics institu institutions, financial uh, sectors, all supporting an industry to make it competitive in the way that the mining industry and the agricultural industry are competitive in Australia. So we, we, we see a burning platform ahead and we believe Australia really needs to think strategically about where our next export industries are going to be. And it's very, it, the, the policies at the moment are very timid. Um, we need to do more. We need to think, do, do what Israel did 30, 40 years ago to get where it's got today or Korea, what Korea did. Um, so basically our research centre is about raising, bringing that to people's notice and doing the research uh, to, to make people realise that this is an objective fact and to look at government programs as they are at the moment and work out which ones are working and which ones aren't and, and what we need to do to actually generate those successful <coughs> export industries. Great, thank you for joining us, Beth. Now, Charlie, you're a recovering engineer, is that fair? Former engineer, Rhodes Scholar, as I dimly recall, worked in consulting, then spent uh, a lot of time in research commercialisation, which then sort of morphed into institution building through the Carlton Connect initiative up at Melbourne University, which is underway still, as we, as we discuss, uh, as we talk tonight. It's a plan to build a precinct where industry and researchers can collaborate. So how does Industry Science Australia fit into your vision for where Australia needs to go in, in those domains? Yeah, thanks, Jim, and thanks uh, for having us tonight. Um, I mean, my passion is really about how ideas, great ideas, find their way into the marketplace uh, in the forms of, of products and services that deliver a better quality of life. And that's been my passion, I can remember, since about year 11 chemistry, um, when I first learnt about fuel cells as this incredibly efficient way of generating power. And then they said they only use it in, like, the space shuttle and they don't use it to drive cars. And I thought, well, this is thermodynamically the most efficient answer. Why don't we use it? So that generated, if you like, a lifelong fascination in how technology comes to fuel products and services. Um, and, and when I was uh, first uh, became aware of the opportunity at ISA, the thing that excited me most about it was, um, I guess, a perception I'd had over my sort of 15, 20 years in the industry uh, that we've constantly been looking for the silver bullet that will solve Australia's innovation problem. Um, but from many years of working with entrepreneurs, I know that there aren't many silver bullets in this game. Uh, it's a relentless process of improvement and uh, iteration to refine and perfect our innovation system. So for me and ISA, I hope we can uh, stop people looking for the silver bullets but start doing the hard work of optimising our innovation system to make it work uh, more effectively in the long term. Thank you. Uh, Bill, your group has just gone through the exercise of assessing Australia's innovation system. And as you mentioned in the introduction, you found it wanting in a number of areas. Where are our weak spots and do we have strengths? And if so, where are they? 
Well, clearly we have strengths. Uh, when we looked at our ability to create new knowledge, our research base, uh, we rank right up there, you know, the top half dozen in the world in terms of new patents, new publications, citations thereof, etc., cetera, uh, per million of population. We're, you know, we're doing exceedingly well. We haven't been able to match that excellence in knowledge creation with excellence in translation and commercialization into the marketplace. That's the general finding, no, no, no light bulb there. I think most of us knew that, but when you look at it in detail, it does become pretty tricky to work out how you go about changing that. And, you know, we want the mission driving the board is we want an Australia that is known, recognised and respected for the excellence of its research and science for sure, but also for its commercialisation of that and <coughs> demonstrating that across, to Beth's point, uh, a diverse set of industries that are internationally competitive and can provide jobs and growth in a fair and inclusive society. That's what we want. That would be, if we get somewhere near there, that'll be the great measure of success. Now, in looking at the challenge, uh, the board identified, and having looked at relative performance reviews and what does Israel do and what does Canada do and what does America do, etc. Uh, we came up with five imperatives that you need to address urgently and convincingly to have a crack at becoming a top-tier innovation nation. And those five imperatives, which I'll quickly describe, are underpinned by 30 recommendations in the report, which we won't get a chance, I'm sure, to talk about. I'd like to, but we won't get a chance to talk. I'm game, so yeah, okay. pick up the pace, we can get Righto, there. well the five imperatives were, number one is, the strap line would be, how do we educate our kids with relevant skills for the 2030 reality? You know, my, my grandchildren today will be 12 or 13, uh, by that time, uh, so there's a whole pile of work there and set of recommendations about curricula and teacher quality and the VET system and so on. The second imperative is how do we get way more high growth companies? Uh, and, there, and, and you know, Beth talked about exports and export industries. There's no doubt that one of the greatest proxies for innovation and international competitiveness are exports. If you're succeeding offshore, you're probably doing something smart onshore, etc. So we've got a set of recommendations uh, about the business incentives for business, which if we get time to talk to tonight, we, sh we should try and do that. The third imperative is about government. How do you make government a catalyst for innovation? Uh, not just providing money, but how do they behave better and more innovatively in procurement, in service delivery, in opening up data assets, in the public service itself. We've called for a review of the Australian public service, one of the least controversial um, recommendations you can imagine. Uh, imperative number four is about, really about research and development, the collaboration for translation and commercialization, uh, which both Beth and Charlie referred to. We don't do collaboration as well as we need to. We don't do it as well as many of our OECD country competitors. Universities over here, business over here, they each think they're nerds or whatever, 
and um, we, and I exaggerate to make the point because it is way better than it was five years ago and certainly supremely better than 10 years ago, but it's got so far to go still and it's low hanging fruit. Um, so we've got a set of recommendations to drive that a lot harder, a lot faster. And then the fifth imperative to solve is what do you do about culture and ambition about innovation nationally? How do you get people with you embracing innovation, not prematurely fearing it, but working out how to really harness and live with it and indeed look for the new jobs and the changing jobs? Because we've concluded as a board that the biggest challenge out to 2.30 is not lack of jobs, it's going to be lack of people who are properly qualified and equipped to handle those jobs. Um, and the key, if we do get time, the key recommendation under that imperative is about national missions, coming up with big projects that can excite, invigorate, inspire people of all ages and all places about what great, the great Australian science and and research and innovation and entrepreneurialism can solve, like the Great Barrier Reef mm. and other things. So I'll, I should push, push my pause button. Great, so we'll, we'll try to run through those five as we, as we progress the discussion, but I wanted to start by posing to all of you, and maybe Beth in the first instance, a, a point of view that would say, appreciating that Governments need to finance basic R&D because the market's not going to do it because you can't capture the benefits. Appreciating that point, but noting that Australia is just 2% of world GDP, why do we not just free ride? Why are we trying to build our pipeline? Why are we trying to solve some of these fundamental problems and make sure that they get to see the light of day through a commercialisation process when we could just wait and buy them all off Amazon or eBay down the track or go to JB Hi-Fi and run our businesses. And in fact, Australian businesses are very rapid adopters. Our productivity performance tracks a little bit below the really large Western economies. It hasn't changed in terms of its ratio that much over the years. So is this whole enterprise even really worth doing? What's the upside? So for firms to be on the efficiency frontier in their particular industry, they obviously need to uh, copy the best in the world. You know, no one wants to reinvent the wheel. You, you obviously take what you can that is off the shelf. But so much of being um, a high productivity firm is that uh, intangible stuff in between that you actually can't buy off the shelf. It's complex production systems, it's know-how, it's um, knowing who, where the markets are, what's the right thing to do at the right time, where the best suppliers are, the best supply chain, how to get finance. So you can't just buy high productivity off the shelf. If you could, everyone would do it. Um, now, why do we do R&D? Well, to be able to uh, understand all those very fuzzy, intangible things, you actually need to be out there on the frontier doing it yourself. And in fact, to be able to successfully buy things off the shelf, you need to be on the frontier in science as well because you can't just pick up a patent document, read it and reproduce it generally. You need to be very skilled in the art as well. So, so basically what I'm saying is to be able to absorb the best of what is happening in the world, at the rest of the world and be able to know where it fits into your production system, you need to be doing it yourself. And it's not, you know, we talk about uh, there being 
copying and, and being original. It's in reality, it's there's not a clear distinction. You, you're doing the same things simultaneously. You do them su successfully. You've got to do them. Charlie, yeah. do you, would you buy? Do you buy that repost, or do you have other? Well, lines also, of I mean, I, I, you know, ditto to to what Beth has just said. I think that's a, that's a sort of classical argument. The the sort of example that I use to um, illustrate that is, uh, you know, I, I think what you're saying is you you could take if I characterise it as a Samsung strategy against Apple, right? So you you your Samsung Galaxy phones kind of copied a lot of stuff in the initial years um, or, or imitated what, what Apple was doing. And if you look at it today, Samsung sell a lot more smartphones than Apple do. But if you look at where the profit in the smartphone industry goes, it almost entirely goes to Apple and Samsung uh, uh, ma Samsung's margins on its phones are very, very low. Which is another way of saying what Beth is saying, that innovators, people who are at the frontier, generate a disproportionate share of the wealth. So that, that's kind of one, one argument. I think there's a second argument, though, um, uh, which is uh, comes back to what Bill said about innovation contributing to, to quality of life. Um, increasingly, it's not so much that you you um, sort of there's this process where innovations get developed overseas and they come over here. The, the innovation and the practice happen simultaneously, and so when uh, you know you get sick with cancer. You want to go to Peter Mac where the cutting edge of cancer research is being done um, because you're going to get better quality care there than you would get if you had to wait for all of those therapies to get all the way through uh, through the clinical process overseas. So, um, you know, if you've, if you've ever had, um, uh, had to interact with the healthcare system, knowing that the healthcare system is, is informed by leading edge research on a first-hand basis makes a difference to the quality of life and the quality of care that you get. Bill. Yeah, well, I, I agree with Beth and Charlie's responses. Let me add a couple more if I can, because uh, it's, a, it's a good question. You know, I, 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 um, I am not for being an importer only and an adopter only. I think you have to do those things very cleverly for the reasons that both Beth and Charlie said. But look, you know, if you think under the heading of commerciality as part of the answer, when you think about the work that we've done on crops over the years with Syro and others, you know, to finish up with amazingly, you know, the most efficient uh, cotton seeds um, in the world currently, uh, but also wheat and uh, sheep and cattle work, etc. You know, no one else is going to bother with that stuff in your endowment. You've got to do it yourself, and why not? You keep the margin, be efficient. Um, so, uh, but moving off the commercial reasons onto sort of security, if you will, as a general heading. Diseases like the Hendra virus, a peculiarly Australian disease, a, a, a problem that's transferable from animal to people, um, that's being solved locally. Who else is going to pick up that problem for you? Maybe eventually, if you pay them enough. Um, but, you know, things like uh, beyond... Uh, going to Peter Mac, how about the first vaccine in the world against cancer? Uh, the first vaccine was against cervical cancer. Thank you, Ian Fraser et al. And um, how wonderful is that? And how much more does that bring in and has brought in huge royalties, etc.? But just in terms of health uh, outcomes, it's a fabulous thing for Australia and the rest of the world. Defence and intelligence. You know, we come up with the Nilka decoy uh, that the, uh, the Brits and others... Uh, have, have been buying and very successfully, but also would you entrust your intelligence? Would you contract that out to people? Uh, 
Not currently, I wouldn't. Um, and so also to the environment. Uh, so all under this heading of security, you know, so I mentioned the Great Barrier Reef, you know, this iconic treasure uh, of the world that's currently right on our doorstep. Hopefully it stays there. Half of it hasn't. Um, you know, there are uh, 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 such basic things as uh, emissions control, how you best do that in your own country, but protecting things like natural resources such as the reef, you've got to do, you, you know, you can't, you shouldn't be just trying to import the marine science that's relevant to that. We've got to have it and export it. So it's a whole set of reasons. And finally, and then I'll hush, culture, which I referred to before, you know, it's not everybody, but I think most people, I certainly would value, a, you know, I want to be a leading society and culture, not a derivative one. Um, and you won't get that by just being an importer or an adopter. You've got to be able to lead with your science and your ideas and your inventiveness and your translation of all of that into actual outcomes. I think that's the sort of country we can have and will have. Well, I find much of that credible. And let's come back Good. to some of the industry policy issues uh, when, we, when we get to that, that chunk of the report. So the first imperative, Charlie, that the report sets out is to respond to the changing nature of work by, and I'm quoting now, equipping all Australians with skills relevant to 2030. So what are the main things that need to happen in the view of, the, of, of, of ISA? Yeah, thanks, Jim. Well, I mean, as, as uh, Bill alluded to earlier on, uh, you know, we, we obviously had a lot of debates through this process and, and in our consultations around the country, we heard a lot of people concerned about the impact that innovation might have on, on the job market um, and, uh, and a level of concern about how, uh, you know, jobs might respond to technological change. Uh, and I think we felt very strongly that um, it's not really necessarily something that Australia... Uh, can choose. These things are going to happen anyway. The question is whether they happen to us or whether we work to shape them. Um, and the key uh, challenge or key enabler for us to do that is to have a really strong education system that equips our entire population to participate fully in that, that, that evolution in the future. What does that mean in practice? Well, um, you know, if you look at the uh, metrics of outcomes in uh, primary and secondary schools on international metrics, uh, in Australia on things like literacy, numeracy uh, and so forth, our indicators are, are trending downwards even as our spend per student uh, trends upwards. Um, that's a trend that we need to, to turn around uh, and what we uh, formed the view following reviewing all the evidence was a real focus on teachers, supporting teachers, the education of teachers uh, and the way that they are supported once they are in practice are keys to uh, turning that trend around. Um, so in the in the primary and secondary area, we, we felt that uh, the focus on teachers was the, the way to go. Um, in terms of the, the curriculum content, um, I'm sure you won't be surprised here, we had a big focus on, on STEM skills. We see STEM skills as key enablers uh, for the economy of the future. I, I hasten to add that that doesn't mean that we think that everyone should become a scientist or a mathematician or something like that, but we do think that the, if you like, the bar for basic levels of literacy in STEM subjects is rising and the idea that you should be able to go through the education system and only have a very passing acquaintance with STEM disciplines is not really tenable 
uh, out into the future. Um, in the post-secondary uh, education area, uh, we focused very much on vocational education. Um, we looked at uh, the effectiveness of uh, Australian post-secondary education, and as Beth has mentioned, higher education is our third largest export industry, which suggests that our, our universities are actually doing a pretty good job uh, at education. But what we heard from industrial stakeholders across the board is that our vocational education system is no longer uh, delivering the kind of outputs that they need. So we've called for a detailed review of that um, with a view to uh, you know, bringing that more into line with the needs of the future and creating a bit more flexibility around that. Now, Beth, your institution was founded by the eponymous Swinburne over 100 years ago with something much like what Charlie's just set out, but for the economy of the time. Does that agenda resonate for you and is it backed up by evidence in your experience that there is, a, let's call it a STEM gap, a science and technology gap that needs to be filled and is that an important part of the solution? Um, well, I think... Uh, just it, it, you've got two sides to this. One is looking at primary, secondary education. The other is looking at higher education. I think we have a lot to learn from Finland in terms of primary and secondary education where they have really turned their education system upside down. Uh, they pay teachers very highly. They, they, uh, teachers expect to be inspiring. I mean, if you think about what was your favourite subject at school, most people will tell you it was a subject in which they had a fantastic teacher who loved their, sub, their subject matter. So I think there's a lot to be done in primary, secondary school in terms of uh, increasing not just the status but the pay to get you know the, 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 the best graduates, the really enthousi enthusiastic graduates into the teaching profession as well. Just in terms of STEM, I think we, we've got to be a bit careful about going overboard and saying STEM's great, STEM's fantastic. Um, you know, we need more STEM graduates. We know, just looking at objective facts, that science graduates have one of the lowest employment rates. When they leave university, um, they don't have the highest salaries. I think they have one of the lowest salaries of all the, the graduate degrees. Um, that's not to say STEM is not important. A lot of the STEM graduates actually do an extra diploma or an extra degree, um, uh, and then that they don't appear in the statistics as just a science graduate. They appear as a vet or a dentist or something like that. But, but it, it is very important that people understand um, business and they understand change, they understand culture as well, and they're your other su subjects as well, the Haas subjects. So if you just bring out people who are just very good at logic and, and facts and, and science, you, you aren't going to necessarily bring out great innovators or great business people who will lead an innovative organisation. In fact, some of the uh, most innovative businesses I've seen are actually run by accountants, you know, so it really depends on the person and, and their drive and their ambition. And I think, um, you know, we, we've got to balance a bit up with, with uh, a broader education maybe for our scientists. Terrific. So maybe more around quality and, if you like, a, a double, a, a T-shaped skill set that's deep technically but has yeah, got at, at Swinburne, the, skills. Now the, now the PhD has a compulsory coursework in areas around um, commercialisation and innovation and, and business performance and how to manage projects. So if you, even if you go and you're doing a PhD in engineering or in physics, astrophysics is very common there, you do have to do these core subjects learning how learning about the business of science, I guess, is what you might want to call it. Terrific, thank you. Well, just 
you know, on our, on our whistle-stop tour, if I move on to the second agenda item, which is around industry, and the way the ISA report summarised the agenda was uh, to, to ensure prosperity by stimulating high-growth firms and improving productivity. Now, Bill, there's quite an ambitious agenda for change in the research and development tax incentive and to shift some of the government expenditure which is currently going through that vehicle, potentially through some more government-directed programs. Can you take us through the, I guess, the vision and the rationale for those changes? Well, the through line, I think, in the report that I'd start with is that what we've noticed is that business investment in research and development and innovation is falling. It reached a high of about 1.3% of GDP at, and, and then since the GFC has fallen to 1% of GDP. So what? Well, our competitor countries, you mentioned Israel, is closer to 4% of GDP. Most of the countries like uh, Germany is about 2.5%, the US is 2%, China's higher, you know, they're all in 2 to 4% range. So we'd like by 2.30 to almost we think we've got to sort of double business investment in R&D. So now, over that time, though, the government, quote-unquote, contribution in the form of that tax incentive has increased quite strongly. So would that suggest that the money's really not being effectively, if you like, the taxpayer, the implicit taxpayer mm. subsidy is not hitting the, hitting the ground? Well, that hypothesis uh, does uh, lend to some evidence examination. So the, you're referring to the Research Development Tax Incentive, the RDTI, which is running at about $3 billion per annum of government uh, support, tax-based support. Uh, that represents 85% of all government incentives for business. Um, when you look at it, it I, I don't... Stop me if we go into too much detail because it breaks into two parts. One is for companies less than 20 million in revenue size and they are entitled to a cash refund at 43.5% of everything they spend on eligible R&D. So that's a very big cash return to startups, early stage scale-up companies less than 20 million in size. We've, in looking at that part of the program, they show quite a lot of additionality. In other words, they're doing stuff beyond just business as usual. Uh, they are spending heaps of money on R&D, you know, like often more than 50% of their total expenditures. Um, and <coughs> um, it is by international standards quite a generous program. When you get to the larger, the scale, uh, bigger middle-sized companies and big companies, over 20 million in sales revenue, uh, they don't get cash refunds, they get a tax offset against future income liabilities, income tax liabilities. Um, in this part of the program, you get a lot less additionality shown, and, uh, uh, and uh, so we've come up with a set of recommendations that are designed to uh, uh, tighten up the program, improve it, including some, addition, some additions that we're recommending which I, I, I can speak to. But the overwhelming um, framework for this is that we think that over time we need to rebalance our indirect tax uh, incentives, which is this RDTI type of incentive, towards 
more directed, growth-oriented, mission-driven incentives like our competitor countries have. So that would include the cooperative research centres or the so-called growth centres, focused on individual industries? Uh, yes, not picking winners per se, but certainly playing to the, uh, the, the sectors that are showing high growth and do have a position of Australian competitiveness that we should be building on and accelerating, whereas the RDTI is agnostic as to mm. growth or to um, industry. But also, uh, we mentioned before uh, that exports are such a great proxy for um, innovation activity. Um, we would like to see that program, the Export Market Development Grants Program, which is available for companies up to 50 million in sales volume. We'd like to see that significantly expanded. They're all already showing, half the applicants, half, half the claimants, are showing cumulative growth rates greater than 20% in jobs and, and export growth. Why wouldn't you want more of that? Now, so Beth, as an economist, you'd have the view that, sure, you're going to subsidise something, firms will do more of it. But that in itself is not a good enough reason for the policy. If you get some positive spillover, which is to say other firms benefit or there's some additional benefit beyond what goes to the recipient firm, then you can begin to make a case. Do you see that in the data? Do you see that firms in an industry where some firms are getting this type of support do better and therefore you know, you've got the makings of this case based on so-called spillovers? Yes, so, so what you're alluding to here is that when governments give um, in private businesses some sort of support, usually it's, it's financial, um, it's not industry welfare. They're not just trying to help one business. They're trying to increase the um, productivity of the whole ecosystem. So they're trying to also improve the business performance of their peer firms, the people maybe in the same region or in the same industry. So we, we have done um, fairly extensive what's called economic modelling. We use very large data sets. We have access to one with about you know, 20, 30 million different observations in it. Um, and we, we do know that, that firms in industries that do more R&D, that does affect the productivity of other firms within their same industry group. So there is that sort of statistical circumstantial evidence that there is, when you give support to one firm, it does help other firms in the area. And it, it sort of has a certain logic to it because there's a bit of demonstration effect when somebody you know, maybe they're in your industry group, they come and they say you've done something and you find out, well, who did you get it from? What supplier did you use? What consultant did you use? What export agent did you use? So there is a little bit of um, uh, that going on. When one firm pulls ahead, it does help other people in the, in the same area. Mm. Um, but just, can I just follow on from what, what Bill said um, about government support for R&D? Compared with um, almost every other country in the OECD area, Australia, Australian governments put less of GD, uh, money into supporting business performance than, it, than all those other countries. So Australia's very, very parsimonious about supporting industry, usually through R&D. So most of it does go through the R&D tax incentive, but they give very little in terms of program support, in terms of cooperative research centres, in growth uh, centres or precincts or, or other sorts of things to help improve productivity, 
um, and increased translation uh, into, into business. So there is a lot of scope for Australian, without being an out, at the moment we're an outlier in the sense that we give very, very little support to industry programs. So there's a lot of scope for increasing that support without um, being sort of outrageously different, I guess. But does that just mean that you, you think it would be a good thing if we got to the OECD average or is there, is there a deeper set of evidence that says these things really pay off? Um, I think there's a lot of evidence from um, look, the countries that we, we regularly look to, uh, you know, America, Israel, that um, Canada and England now with their catapult centres are really pulling ahead, that um, having strategic programs to go in and develop to, to un basically underwrite the risk of innovation, that's what a lot of government spending can do through its innovation procurement or through other, other schemes. If they can underwrite the risk of these risky investments, um, it makes it easier for business to invest in that technology and then take it up. So, you know, for decades following uh, World War II, uh, America, through its DARPA program, invested a huge amount of money into small, small innovative businesses in, in America, around Boston, around Silicon Valley. And a lot of the big inventions that we now take for granted came out of that program. So the, the government basically did the risky end. They, they helped a lot with the translation and commercialisation to the first sort of prototypes or the first generation of those in inventions and then they took off by themselves. And their defence procurement really turbocharged that particular sector as well in terms of innovation and so on. So would you regard building 12 submarines in Adelaide as a, you know, 21st century Australian version of that type of nation building investment? I don't, maybe Charlie can answer that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, perhaps, Charlie, can I ask you a different question? <laughs> Unless you, it, so my, an additional question was going to be a really important part of the way that firms learn from the frontier around the world is through the movement of people, skilled people, who know how to do very specific things. Now, Australia's tightened up some of its migration programs recently, much to the disappointment of the tech startup community, the consulting community, and of some multinationals. Are you seeing moves afoot to fix that problem? Yeah, and I'd have to say that I think the ISA board is very concerned about the impact of uh, tightening of skilled migration on the growth of our, uh, our technology sector and our broad sort of high growth startup sector more generally. Um, you know, for the first time in a long time, uh, I think we've seen some of the constraints that traditionally have, have held back that sector being venture capital um, starting to loosen up. So we've seen the availability or the amount of money going into venture capital in Australia uh, double every year for the last few years. So it's now, I think, 400% higher than it was uh, just a few years ago. Uh, so we've actually got capital, but now we run the risk of not having the kind of talent and skills that is required to deploy that capital really effectively. So, so um, you know, skilled immigration policy is probably number one on my list of issues that we're talking to uh, the government about on a regular basis. And I think it's one of the, the areas where uh, we can expect that the, the government has already said that it's going to have more to say on this uh, and we'll be watching that very closely. Now, again, just aware of time and I want to leave plenty of time for people uh, in the audience to engage with you directly, but the, the rest of the imperatives include, Bill, as you mentioned, government to the extent that it's mm. capable becoming more of a catalyst for innovation. It's the biggest single entity in the economy, has huge procurement budgets, and you've proposed some shifts towards 
local procurement, small business procurement that um, might have the effect of accelerating some of the R&D that's undertaken by those small organisations. In the interest of time, what I was going to propose that we, is that we dig into the imperative four around research and development, mm -hmm. which is closely linked to the industry agenda we've just discussed, but with a big focus on improving so-called translation and commercialisation from the universities, which, as you acknowledged, or several of you have already said, has been a traditionally a weakness for Australia. And can I just start by first asking, is it really a weakness or is it just that we've had a different industry mix? Compared to some of our peer economies, we've got much less manufacturing, we've got more tourism, more resources, which is dominated by, arguably, by a few larger firms that are capable of doing their own innovation. So, A, are we really weak? And then conditional on that, what's the agenda? And is there good reason to think the agenda is going to make a big difference? No, we're really weak. Um, <laughs> and, and, uh, but for some rational behaviour, in a small domestic economy called Australia, a long way away from the rest of the world, you know, tyrannies of distance and so on, business people have been risk-averse sensibly enough, I suppose, over some long time. But even in my time as a venture capital... Well, prior to my time in venture capital, you think about X-ray crystallography invented here. You know, X-ray went somewhere else, and the Xerox machine went somewhere else. The black box flight recorder invented here, commercialised elsewhere. Photovoltaic cells. Um, you know, I can go on and on. Uh, and, and my own experience has been uh, in venture capital uh, and backing uh, others, that uh, the collaboration uh, has been, until very recent times, pretty weak. And it's still weak because of that background. Um, so what do you... That, so that's my view. Uh, I'm a glass half full, though, that it's a huge opportunity for us to go be more aggressive about and, and get on with. And so we have come up with some recommendations about that, including a collaboration premium to go into the RDTI scheme to, as a carrot for business to be able to get a premium tax offset, the bigger companies, if they reach out into universities and publicly funded research organisations like CSIRO, et cetera, and uh, go and find the university and find out what they can do, present them with the problems and vice versa. And Beth, the government has already taken steps to mm. change the rating balance on which universities are allocated funding to reward engagement and translation more than it was rewarded in the past. Are those programs beginning to have an effect that you see on the ground? And if so, could should more be done? Um, so it uh, may surprise you that until World War II, you, we didn't officially recognise that universities did research. So. So that's also set out to do teaching and some people did research, well that was sort of nice and it happened. After World War II it was more formally recognised, um, uh, I'm talking across the developed world, that they did research and you had programs set up and you had metrics and you had funding for research. Um, now come up to about the 1990s, there's, there's no, f or 2000s, there's no formal recognition of engagement and impact and translation at universities. Some people do it, that's nice, but they're not recognised. I think that's now changing with the government policy, which is to officially measure engagement and impact by academics with what they call end users, which means industry or the community. As a new criterion for allocating research dollars. 
We don't know if it, they have not announced whether or not that will be attached uh, uh, attached to money or not. But the first thing they're doing is actually forcing the universities to measure what they do in that space, which is a good thing. But I think it's the very, very beginning of a, a long-term trend in the same way that you, they didn't never officially recognise universities did research. They're now, and that's obviously come full. You know, it's now a major thing for universities. They're now changing the way we recognise that translation part of what we do. Um, it's got to be attached to money to make it's, a real impact. I, I, I absolutely agree with you, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm not the well, Prime Minister, so... Um, so, no, so no, Charlie, no. when yeah. you were running Carlton Connect, was that an initiative that the University of Melbourne got involved with for, if you like, in direct response to the short-term incentives that it was facing? Or was it a more, if you like, strategic, dare I say, visionary um, you know, initiative that was, that was not responding just to those near-term financial incentives? Um, I, I think it was one of those things, um, for those of you who aren't aware, Carlton Connect was the development or is the development of an innovation precinct around the university. It was a recognition by the leadership of the University of Melbourne of where the future of universities was kind of headed, I think. I don't think it was responding to policy. It was probably anticipating where policy was inevitably going to go. Um, and I think uh, those who look at where universities in Australia uh, are going to go over a 10, 20, 30 year time horizon do tend to think that this issue of engagement is going to figure larger and larger in, uh, I guess, the role that universities play in, in society as a whole. Um, so no, it, it wasn't really in response to government incentives, it was actually anticipating, I think, where they were going to go. I think what we're arguing in this report is that government incentives need to come in behind that trend and, and reinforce it if we're going to underpin the kind of prosperity that Bill spoke about at the start. Now, I've got dozens more questions, but I know there are, there are more in the crowd. So I wanted to now just, um, just give each of you an opportunity to fill in the one glaring gap in our discussion so far. Bill, you might want to say a few words about the so-called national mission as, as, as well, if you've got the appetite. And then, having papered over those gaping cracks, we can then open it up to broader discussion. Right. I'm, I'm, happy, to leave, I'm happy to leave the national missions to the broader discussion, other than perhaps to point out that, um, you know, we chose a first cab off the rank to be in the healthcare sector to drive our existing capability in genomics and precision medicine um, with a much greater gusto of dollars and people to integrate it fully into our healthcare system. And we believe that will help move Australia from where it is in the top six or so in terms of longevity of life and on, on the vertical axis and cost per patient, on the cost per person, national population on the on the horizontal axis um, uh, we're already at about at 83 years of longevity uh, number six in the world we think there's a crack at moving that to number one and if we could become the healthiest nation on the planet that would be a great thing for everybody uh, kids and their kids etc and a big the big indicator to the rest of the world we're serious about science and innovation come here uh, get with the program, you know. I think it's a very exciting mission, but I'm happy to talk about the other ones as well later on if we have time. Thank you. Beth? Um, I think one of the big opportunities for Australia is basically global supply chains or global production chains. So if we want to develop 
the best whatever in the world, um, that's probably going to be a small component of a bigger product. And, and I, there are quite a few businesses I know, particularly around Melbourne, that are actually doing that, those sort of hidden champions. Mm. And what they've done is they've, they're, they're producing the best tool, the best, the best tool, tap or the, or the best um, fabric liner or, or the best little head for a, um, part of a car component uh, in the world and they've managed to, they've probably spent 20 years doing it, it didn't, didn't happen overnight, uh, they've managed to somehow get themselves into the global supply chain. So they're supplying that tiny little thing to, you know, may, maybe 7 billion people around the world. Um, so I think that's, that's where our opportunity lies. Now, that is also a challenge because, as Bill said, you know, we're, we're not in the swim, we're not in the thick of it, we're not in, the, in the, those major centres in Europe and North America. And we do probably need, that is a role here for industry programs to help leverage us into those, open the doors, help leverage us into those global supply chains. So when we do start to hit upon a great idea that has potential, um, we're not blocked by the fact no one knows us, we don't have a relationship with them and, and you know, we're never physically present in front of them to, to sell our products. Yeah, sorry to interrupt you, Jim, yeah. on that. Is Paul Butler in the audience? I saw he might have been. Uh, founding chairman of a Melbourne company called Textor, classic. Phil, Phil Butler, yeah. Oh, Phil Butler. Yeah. I've blown it. Okay. Anyway, Textor, to your point, really, Beth, uh, a struggling sort of small business in Melbourne, gets with Syro to come up with a, a new and better absorptive fabric for nappies, uh, and cracks into the global supply chain. And what do you know? Lands Kimberly Clark the largest nappy co company in the world. You might have different views about this product, by the way, but they make hundreds of millions now of uh, 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 metres of, of these, uh, this fabric uh, and in an automated plant in Tullamarine with the number of employees have gone up, not down, as a result of that automation, automation because they're more competitive mm. and they're, they're in a global supply chain. So those sorts of companies are great examples of... I agree, Beth, we, we, and we've got to drive more of those, and they got there in part through the NDG program. Charlie. Um, yeah, so look, at the risk of, um, you know, dragging us all down from the, the global uh, aspirations thing, my, my pet topic would probably be around, around measurement and continuous improvement, because I think that, uh, as I said at the start, too often we, we kid ourselves that innovation policy is about finding the silver bullet that will, will fix, you know, what apparently ails Australia. I, I think improved innovation policy is a matter of measuring the important things. Now, some things we currently measure, uh, we measure well. Other things our current metrics uh, are not particularly well suited to and we need to improve. And there are still other things, like innovation in the digital space, where we don't even know quite what the right metrics should be because it's emerging and evolving so fast. But my one of my hopes would be, and we, we talk about it a little bit in our report, it's the important role of metrics and measurement and, and continually investing to try to improve that. Uh, because my biggest fear um, is that innovation policy is not evidence-based, is not driven by, by data and, and metrics, uh, and is driven by um, you know people thinking they've got the next big idea. And I think to get really, really good at it, Australia needs to be uh, data-driven. Terrific. Well, thank you. So let's move to questions, and I'll just kick off with one that was pre-submitted. Some of the others were uh, already covered in the discussion. And let me just preface my... Um, the, the, the question period by reminding people, uh, if you can say your name, 
be aware that we're recording the event. It's going to be available on the web. Um, and and we'll, we'll kick off, we'll have microphones. But the, a question was around the role of intellectual property protection. There is a view that says Australia is a net buyer, so we should try to weaken protections. Is there a view that IP is a big deal for Australian innovation and that the settings are wrong? Or alternatively, is a view that they're, you know, now with the Productivity Commission's recent review, we're close to where we need to be and that it doesn't need to be a major part of the agenda? Do you want, do you want me to? Yeah, Beth. Okay. Um, so, intellectual property covers copyright, patents, designs, trademarks um, and electric, electronic circuits. So, it's quite a, 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 a bag of, of heterogeneous goods and there's no sort of, you know, one sort of problem with intellectual property. There's a whole lot of different problems. But the things to bear in mind with intellectual property is we are subject to international agreements. Um, to get, and I'm not saying you can't change those, you should want to change those because some of them aren't very good, but we, we do only have a certain amount of wriggle room nationally within those international agreements. Um, in terms of well, what are, what are problem, major problems with it, well, copyright is, uh, is well known to be far too long and far too strong and, and really results in a lot of rent-seeking behaviour on behalf of copyright holders that has nothing to do with innovation at all. So that is one area, but that is a, a really an international problem that we sort of have to live with. Within the patent system, um, the patents, international patent agreements have always said that they've got to be fair and universal, you've got to treat everyone you know, equally, which is all very nice, but we know absolutely categorically that uh, people outside the major trading blocks are disadvantaged when they apply for a patent as a foreigner in a another country. Because we're really very much on our own, that means we're disadvantaged when we apply for a patent in every major market in the world. So that, that's another bugbear. But, but I think we can overemphasise patents too much. They are important for certain industries, particularly biotech, some areas of manufacturing. But in a lot of areas, people are just going on and doing the job. They're, they're becoming competitive by keeping ahead of the game. They're not worrying so much about patents. So, so we, you know, I think there's a lot that, that's important other than, than, than patents or, or copyright. Great, thank you. Well, let's now open it up to the floor. So the questions are all on the starboard hull. One, one down the back and there's a couple in the middle. That's right. The ship's sailing backwards, that's a worry. Okay, and, and look, can I make one other suggestion? Let's bunch them into groups of three. So we do the first question and then we'll get two more. Yeah, down the back. Yeah, hi. Uh, my name is David Campbell. I'm a serial masochist in the innovation field over the last 40 years. Um, Charlie and I worked in the commercialisation field and, and we know where a lot of skeletons are buried, I guess, Charlie. Um, the online comment on the, on the review has been mixed, um, basically saying it's more of the same with the last 30 or 40 years discussion and hasn't been hard-hitting enough in some of its recommendations. Um, and Briefly, I think Bill mentioned the, the fact that we're a small country a long way away, you know, a small economy a long way away from the rest of the world. I was in another small economy last week in New Zealand and reminded that 20 years ago they did their foresight study over there, which was their sort of reality check on where they were at in the whole space and they realised they were going to fall off the bottom of the planet if they didn't do something. And they did some very innovative things. Um, 
So my question is, you know, we're seeing a lot of innovation, not just in technology, but in, in business models that are very disruptive in, in the economies we operate in. We're even seeing a very disruptive American president. What do we need to do to be disruptive here, to really shake the tree, to change the whole culture and focus on innovation? I agree entirely with Charlie about it's incremental, it's a long, hard slog, it needs to be data-driven, evidence-based. But what are some of the things that we need to do to be very disruptive, to really shift this thinking, a bit like Keating's uh, Banana Republic comment that'll shift us, just like the Kiwis had to shift across the ditch 20 years ago, and we saw them do some very innovative things, like Fonterra and Via Lactea, for example, in the dairy industry. Great, thank you. And there was a, qu a question up just on the aisle there. Cameron Clark, I'm in the software industry and uh, I suppose feet on the ground about issues that, uh, that work and don't. And my first observation, and I'd be interested in your comments, is that uh, academia and uh, small business don't find each other easily and uh, there's quite a, a gap in that area. The second one is there comes a time when you've launched your small business and you're out in your own, time for commercialisation and you're trying to make a buck. And the fact that I've found on our journey is that governments don't buy local product. Great, thank you. And then there was, I think the other one was in you. In yep, that's fine. Come to you. Okay. Um, I'm in uh, researcher in education. Uh, that's why I'm trying to find out some kind of a meaning to the entire uh, board of innovation. Because uh, if you go by the book uh, a long time back, the Stephen Covey's, you know, highly effective people, seven hybrids of highly effective people, he says about uh, we see the world the way we are, um, in the sense, okay, that everyone we means not only us, also the businesses, government, and everything they see the world differently, and also they see innovation differently, and it is very difficult to really put everything under one head, innovation, unless we break it down for each category of those people. So do we see any kind of um, uh, informative uh, information that is at the 2030 plan that we have, which kind of you know, classifies innovation in different categories? Terrific, thank you. So a question about culture, one about small business and academia, and one really about, I guess, different worldviews. Any thoughts about how to fix the culture? This might be your fifth agenda item in the report. Yeah, I think the, uh, well, first of all, I'd say, uh, I'm not sure I heard all of David, the first question, uh, clearly enough, but uh, look, we, we believe our report is, uh, it, it's quite a broad uh, view of the entire society and how it's got to all work together. And our ideas are actually quite large and impact pretty much every national policy setting that the government should be thinking about from education right through to uh, the way academia and business need to get together and so on. Um, and if one of the drivers here is how do you get the whole community involved, and the third question had a, a reference to this, we were asked to take, an ex and, and, uh, and we have taken, a sort of whole of government. I wonder if that's... Uh, Mr. Shorten interrupting. Um, uh, we were asked to, and, and we have pursued, by the way, a bipartisan approach about this. If you, know, if you can't be bipartisan about innovation, you've got a problem, that's for sure. But I think we broadly 
can expect that. Um, but my point was going to be um, the reason we've called for an Australia, a, a, a review of the public service, the last time was, you know, Nugget Coombs in the 70s and then David Block did a bit of a one in the early 90s and, and nothing's happened since. It's not because we think the public service is sitting on their ass and, and, and so on, but we just don't think they're actually equipped fit for purpose for what we envisage and need now. And so we want government to be innovative in the way it thinks about policy, implements policy, drives procurement, government as a first customer, all those sorts of ideas and challenge-based grants and so on. Uh, they're not equipped to do that yet. And the default that we all face, particularly around budget time, is that the whole of government defaults back to individual de departmental protection of uh, of sort of silo-based allocations of funding and ideas. So it's, it's, a, it's a real challenge. It's a real challenge. Um, so um, good question, but that's my sort of commentary about it. We, we think the report understands that and has tried to deal with it. Great. Small uh, business and universities. Yeah, ma maybe. I, so thank you very much for that comment about small business interacting with the universities. So quite a few universities recognise it. No, that doesn't mean they're doing anything about it. But there's, there's no front door that you can actually go and knock at and say, I want this sort of expertise or I've got this weird problem. Who, who should I speak to? And I know a lot of uh, people who try and penetrate the, the, um, the, the phone lines or the website mm. of universities get put off very quickly. So a few universities, I'm not sure how universal it is, have, have set up these sort of uh, maybe a front door service like Charlie mentioned, Carlton Connect at University of Melbourne. Swinburne's just set up its innovation precinct. I think, I think RMIT and Monash have some too, whereby you can sort of wander in with an ill-informed, um, well, not ill-informed, but a problem that you can't necessarily express in an academic language and they will help, they will triage you basically and, and tell you where to go. And Previous, the state government previously had what's called innovation vouchers, and I know some other state governments have them too, whereby they give you $10,000 as a sort of a subsidy for a first taste if you want to do a bit of collaboration with the university to sort of see if you like each other and you understand each other's problems. But um, they've, they have stopped them in Victoria, and I don't know if they're going to start them again. But that is more, more is needed, I agree. Thanks, Beth. And any thoughts on the fact that the, the world views of government, business, small business are so radically different? Um, I, I think that uh, at the end of the day, um, the innovation system is, is, you know, the sum of the combined efforts of the private sector, the public sector, government and, and, and other players. Um, and uh, we do need to have a, a shared view about what constitutes innovation. I think sometimes uh, we focus too much on, if you like, the discovery piece and not enough on the translation piece as being a critical part uh, of innovation. Um, and so I think, you know, within Australia, we could usefully focus a lot more on, if you like, the D side rather than the R side within R&D. Um, I'm not sure if that really answers the question, though. Yeah. Um, I think uh, the problem with dealing with government departments directly on this issue is that the politicians are very risk-averse. They're surrounded by heaps of lawyers who, who have um, terrible contracts that say, you know, you take all the risk and, and we, we bear none of the liability for anything that goes wrong. And so the, 
it, it just does not work within a government bureaucracy um, trying to have an innovation procurement program or other sorts of programs to in, in improve uh, R&D and translation in this area. One model that might work better is the RDC model that Australia has and a lot of people around the world come in uh, to look at it because it's so uh, successful apparently in, in some of the areas and that's basically an arm's length corporation that has both industry and government money pouring into it but they make up the decisions themselves, they decide where the money is to be spent, how it's to be translated, which problems are going to be solved and so if anything goes wrong it's not the politician's fault so it, it sort of takes the risk, the political risk out of this whole area. Terrific, thank you. I think we'll have time for one more round of three questions. So moving, got a question in the middle down the back and then um, and then behind you and then the one in the, in the next row and then we'll, if we Hi. can, get to the middle. Um, my name's Ariane. I work in the architecture industry. I know that a couple of you have mentioned this idea about an innovation precinct and the Carlton Connect initiative and I think they're fantastic. I was just wondering if you could elaborate uh, for people working in the built environment or planning industries, how we might consider um, policy frameworks that foster precincts for innovation. Great, thank you. And then over on the edge. Um, so my name's David, I'm from the University of Melbourne. Um, my question centres around the growth of small medium, small, medium enterprises and one of the most critical aspects of that, or if not the keystone to that, is capital, um, private sector capital coming through venture capital. I just wanted some ideas around how we might further unlock venture capital funding in Australia to prevent the culture of uh, firms saying, you know, in order to scale and need, and if we need more money, we need to go overseas. Thank you. And then on the, uh, on the other aisle. It's right there, thanks. Yeah, my name's David Brockway. I was um, CEO of a CRC for a decade. I was chief of a division of CSIRO for seven years. And I want to explore a little bit about the efficacy of collaboration between CSIRO and universities with industry. So um, I've got a couple of, at least one very good example of how it's worked very well. But in most instances, it, it does not. So I was just wondering if the panel would comment on how we could improve the efficacy of collaboration between research organisations and industry. And I'm happy to give a comment later on one that has worked very well. Great, thank you. Again, just aware of time. So the first question was around precinct, policy for precincts. Indeed. So uh, this is a topic close to my heart, so you might have to shut me up if I go on for too long. But just very briefly, um, you know, I think the really uh, interesting thing, uh, a lot of the emerging work around precincts um, moves away from what we've traditionally thought of as national innovation systems policy, which thinks about things like tax structures and, and grant structures, to local, really strong local innovation policy, which looks at both how the, uh, how the how places are made, so how spaces are used to bring people together. Increasingly, uh, what we see in the world is a move towards much more open innovation, where firm boundaries become a lot more porous, and collaboration between firms becomes really, really important. And so um, a big emphasis on how the built environment can support that kind of collaboration with sort of communal spaces and so forth becomes really important. Uh, similarly, uh, you know, as part of that, uh, good transit connectivity becomes important in how you design 
innovation precincts, so the ability for people to get around uh, and connect with other parts of uh, of a precinct becomes an important part of the design. Uh, and then the, the other part, which is less architectural, uh, perhaps more organisational, is to look at the various intermediary organisations and how what I call social capital is built between organisations within a precinct um, beyond just um, the, the individual uh, organisations of their own. Now, this is an area which is, uh, you know, still very much emerging in terms of academic literature. It's got a, a reasonably strong history in Europe under what's called the smart specialisation sort of programs which have looked at building on particular regional strengths. But it's an area uh, which is very much emerging here in Australia um, but has, I think, a lot of potential for us as a nation as we think about our innovation system. Um, I'll just talk about the issue of collaboration particularly. Well, you mentioned CSIRO, but collaboration can occur between private businesses or public sector organisations and private businesses. Um, we've done a bit of survey, it was actually when I was at uh, University of Melbourne, but we've done quite a bit of surveying of uh, deals between parties for the purposes of translating um, immature technology and making it commercial. And what we found is that um, the two big factors in whether or not the collaboration went ahead, we, we didn't get to the stage of did it make money, but went ahead, was uh, firstly whether the interests of the two parties were aligned. So it's quite possible that a failed collaboration might have occurred because the researcher just wanted a publication and the industry just wanted a, a, a new technology to make something cheaper and, and, and there was no great overlap between what the two wanted. They had different motivations. So alignment of motivations was one factor. The second factor was having a relationship of trust and familiarity between the two parties. So when you can't write everything in a contract, it's just impossible to write every un unforeseen contingency into a contract. And so when contingencies, when something changes that's not covered in the contract, you've just got to trust the other party will, will behave in the spirit of what you agreed to. And, and that, that was quite important in whether or not collaboration proceeded. Quick underline on the collaboration question. Um, the board has been very focused on what existing programs work and have been demonstrated to work. And we've been very impressed by the CRC program, which is long running, and in particular the new version additional to the, the um, longer term CRC traditional model which probably you ran one of those, David. Um, the CRCPs, which are shorter three-year three timelines, industry and academia working, but the project definitely defined by industry and joined up with uh, the publicly funding research to drive it quicker. I think it's been a great program and demonstration of what collaboration has achieved for Australia. Um, I'm thinking of the CRC capital markets one, uh, the wound management one, a whole variety of CRCs which have really shone through. I was going to try and answer the venture capital question. What was the through line of the question? Well, effectively just that small firms even today still look to earlier commercialisation than might be ideal because the capital markets and commercialisation pathways are thicker overseas than they are here. Well, you know, maybe that's still got a ways to go, but boy, it's, uh, it's moved pretty quickly in the last five years or so. Um, as Charlie mentioned earlier, the supply of venture capital was running at about three to four hundred, three fifty million a year new venture capital supply. Uh, it's now at one, one and a quarter billion per annum rate. Uh, it's really picked up big time. 
Uh, and that's as a result of private sector managers like Airtree and Blackbird and SquarePeg and so on. Um, and mainly in software and IT sectors, uh, to be true. But also add to that the Biomedical Translation Fund, which we did get up in the last two years, which is addressing in particular the biomedical sector, molecules, devices, new services that are ready for or right at clinical trial phase and you couldn't ever get the money for that locally in venture capital until fairly, well, until, until now. Um, uh, and so that sector is, is also being, uh, uh, seeing a, a new input of venture capital. The main sequence venture from, uh, the main sequence fund now run by CSIRO is another couple of hundred million. The Defence Science and Technology Group has got a one point four billion allocation, albeit over a 10 year period, to work with early stage uh, tech companies that can solve defence problems in, a, in an innovative way. So it's a, a whole new, not just rhetoric, but capability to do that. I think stay tuned with us. The venture capital scene's pretty active. Um, and, um, uh, you know, we're, we're seeing more US funds as well come out, uh, not just US, but overseas funds to try and get in the game. So it's a, it's a, it used to be a huge handbrake in my lifetime as a venture capitalist, um, but I don't think that's our biggest problem currently at all. Well, thank you, Bill, and thank you to those six questioners. We may have a little time afterwards for people who didn't get to ask questions to approach the front of the auditorium. But if I can just wrap up by thanking all of you, thanking our hosts, the State Library of Victoria, it's a fantastic partnership from Grattan's standpoint, and a special thank you to you, Beth Webster, Charlie Day, and Bill Ferris for what I found a fascinating, detailed discussion of a really important policy issue for Australia. So thank you. Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy, with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.